You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte, Sinead Maripodi. Hello everyone and thanks for joining me on Writers Off The Page, where I chat to authors about the story behind their stories and get their top tips not only for writing an awesome book, but most importantly, getting it published. Originally from the UK, Alan Carter moved to Australia in 91. He's a crime writer, occasional television documentary director, and in his spare time plunges into icy Tasmanian waters for fun. We'll find out about that later. He's well known for his award-winning Kato Kwong series, made up of Prime Cut, Getting Warmer, Bad Seed, Heaven Sent, and the latest, which has only recently hit the shelves, Crocodile Tears. Alan Carter, thank you so much for joining me from Tasmania. Uh, great to be part of your podcast. So, Alan, take me back to the beginning. What gave you the bug for writing to start with? Um, well, I've been for many, many years a storyteller in terms of uh, working as a TV documentary maker and, and a big reader. Um, but I never really imagined that I would actually be a writer, uh, although I must have mentioned it to my wife at one time that maybe would be interested to see if there was a book inside me. And we had moved down to Hopeton on the south coast of WA because Kath got a job at the local school there, part of the mining boom. And uh, moving to a new town with our family and setting up there wasn't easy if I was going to be flying fly out the wrong way to do my documentary work. So she made me an offer I couldn't refuse and said if I stayed home and uh, did the housework, looked after the kids, be a stay-at-home dad, she would take care of the bills, and maybe in my spare time, I could uh, write that book that was inside me. Oh, wow. So she called my bluff. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah, and it all kind of sprung from there. Really, one day I wasn't a writer. The next day I was um, suddenly going to be one. Was it always crime writing for you? Was that what you read yourself? Uh, yeah, I was reading a lot of crime and continued to do so. So I thought if I was going to be... Um, aspiring to go into anywhere, any particular field of writing, it would be crime. Uh, a lot of my documentaries had also focused on the world of crime. Um, I mean, it's, out, it's, it's, it's a huge readership crime fiction uh, and crime on TV and in the movies. It's, it's there all the time. People, I think, see crime and crime fiction. Uh, uh, I don't know. The, the stakes are high. Um, it takes care of all of the kind of the, the foibles and um, the sins of humanity. So it's a kind of a classic good versus evil thing. So storytelling wise, that's going to be it. So how long did it take to go from, I guess, that decision to properly try and write that book to that first publishing contract? It was a, about a year after I'd finished, um, I'd, I'd put the manuscript together during that time uh, of writing, um, I had I'm, I'm probably surfing the net one day, looking for inspiration or, or procrastinating, whatever I was doing. But I came across a Penguin Crime Writing Competition, which wanted the first 5,000 words of an unpublished manuscript. And I'd written 5,000 words by then. So I polished them up and sent them off. And I, I got to be a runner-up in that competition. Then within a few weeks of that, there was the in the UK, the um, Crime Writing Association's debut dagger, which wanted the same thing, 5,000 words unpublished. 
I sent the same lot off and got in the shortlist for that as well. So having never really believed I'd ever get published from the outset, because it's a pretty daunting prospect to go from manuscript to ending up on a bookshelf, um, I suddenly thought, oh, maybe I do have a chance here because getting the shortlistings in those um, awards gave me uh, a chance to stand above the crowd, if you like, the slush pile. <laughs> did those words that were in the awards and the shortlistings, did they go on to become one of your novels? Prime Cut. Um, so it was the first 5,000 words of Prime Cut. Although by the time Prime Cut became that book, it, uh, they'd been uh, well polished and uh, edited by then. But it was very similar, um, the last first 5,000 words, yeah. So who took you on and what was it like getting that contract? Uh, Free Adult Press came to the party. Um, God bless them. <laughs> uh, and, and the, yeah, it was, uh, it was on for young and old from then on. So, um, so uh, Georgia Richter uh, was pretty well on the case from uh, day one. So your latest book is the fifth and final instalment of the Kato Kwong series that Prime Cut was the first one of. I'll get okay. you, before we go on, tell me a bit about Crocodile Tears. Uh, Crocodile Tears um, is actually the, uh, the product of, uh, I did a PhD at Curtin University recently, and it was my PhD novel, um, and the the whole background thesis to the PhD was looking at how Australian crime fiction can um, help illustrate um, Australia's relationship with its neighbours in the Asia Pacific, and there are a whole bunch of books out there which have over the years shown that relationship. So I was interested to explore that within the novel context. So it opens with uh, our hero Kato who is investigating the um, brutal murder of uh, two old men, uh, two retired gentlemen. One lives in Perth, the other in Bunbury, uh, and seemingly unconnected, but of course they're not. Um, and he's looking into that, and that's, the clues from that lead him to uh, Timor Leste uh, and its recent um, blood-soaked history in terms of... Um, oil, Indonesian occupation, uh, the whole relationship with Australia over the years. Meanwhile, uh, there's a second character who has equal billing this time with Kato, and he first appeared in the book Bad Seed, third book in the series, and that's Rory Driscoll, and he's a, a kind of an amoral spook-type figure. And he's been charged with um, babysitting a bunch of whistleblowers who are blowing the whistle on um, certain happenings in Timor-Leste. So they run parallel, but of course, gradually converge. So did you know when you wrote Prime Cut, when you got that first contract, that there were going to be five in the series? Not at all. Um, I was just happy to have one contract for one book and uh, see how that went. Uh, of course, I did aspire that it would be a series because I, I, if I'm reading crime fiction, I tend to follow a series character. Um, but I never at the time thought it would uh, go as far as a, a five book series at all. I just went with the flow, if you like. So you only pitched it as one book originally. At what point did you think that it was going to continue once you were two or three books in? Did you get a bit of a, a plan series-wise? 
Um, I think, it, well, by the end of, uh, once the book had come out, uh, it then won a, a Ned Kelly Award for um, First Fiction. Uh, so it was a, a cracking kind of um, staff for the, the writing career. Uh, and Fremantle Press then wanted two more Catos. Uh, so I I dreamt them up, and and uh, then I, I could see that yes, it would be a series, but I didn't uh, think how long that series might be from the beginning. I just um, wrote them as they as they were contracted, if you like. So there wasn't an overarching, I suppose, plot line for the whole series, as opposed to just one individual novel. No, uh, just with every uh, novel, I as well as having the main mystery plot going on. Um, I would gradually uh, do something with Cato's kind of story arc, if you like, his character arc, uh, and change how things were happening for him in his personal life, his background, if you like. Where do you get your inspiration from? Oh, a whole bunch of things. Um, some of the characters are based on... Uh, Sharon, Cato's wife, is pretty much based on Kath, my wife. <laughs> um uh, as most of the women, the, the stronger women in my other series as well, the, the Nick Chester series in New Zealand, they're all based on Kath. Um, uh, the, in terms of plot lines, some of them are drawn from headlines in the newspapers or in the media. Others are just makeup. Obviously, Crocodile Tears, um, with its focus on whistleblowing and the oil negotiations in Timor, is very much um, anchored in. Uh, real-life headlines, if you like. With that, did you find that you needed to tread carefully given the politics that came into it? Um, it it's Everything that's uh, in there in some form or other is already in the public domain, if you like, so I didn't feel a huge need. I had to be careful with names, obviously, so mm-hmm. I um, made sure there was nobody who could recognise themselves within that. But... Um, for the most part, it, 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 it's drawn from, uh, l- loosely drawn from real life, if you like, and, and I didn't feel any need to um, backpedal at all on that. How did this book differ to the early series? Prime Cut was your first, your debut novel. You've written a lot since then. Has the process changed over the years? Uh, well, this one, all of the previous Cato novels have been uh, what you might uh, pigeonhole as police procedural um, genre. You, you know exactly, you've got a bunch of cops, they're dealing with a mystery and they work within usually the uh, the constraints of um, police protocols, if you like, although you break rules here and there to get what you want. This one is more like a hybrid of a police procedural and political spy thriller. Um so that was a new departure for me, um, having the Rory Driscoll line or thread as a the spy thriller, which was fun to write because you can break more rules with that. He can go off and do what he likes. It's also, uh, I think, a much darker, I mean, all of the novels have been fairly dark, I suppose, <laughs> at times. But uh, this one, uh, yeah, it, it, it seemed to be a, a darker zeitgeisty one of the times, if you like. And I suppose the other thing in terms of plotting, you have the, the plotters and the pantsers are for the most part being a pantser and made things, and you just followed wherever the plot seemed to take me day by day. 
with this one, because I had that overarching thing from the PhD thesis, it didn't. It, it kind of acted as a framework within which the novel was gradually moving forward. Uh, I knew what the parameters were. So it wasn't exactly pre-plotted, but it was in some way um, offering me a, a way of, I knew where I was going with it in general terms. Mm. I've got a few things I want to ask about the PhD after, but it, it always intrigues me with a crime novel, particularly when authors say that they pants instead of plot. Do you at least know when you start writing, I guess, who's who, who's done it? With Prime Cut, I didn't. Um, I, I was two-thirds of the way through Prime Cut before I knew who done it and why. Um, so that was a, a real, a, a, probably because of my uh, inexperience at the time, just you know, going with the flow. Since then, I have had a very general idea of where things were going. Um, the writing of Bad Seed was uh, an interesting change of routine because uh, that part of that was written while I was on a residency in Shanghai with the Shanghai Writers Association. And so I'd written about a third of the book before I left for Shanghai and then suddenly I had to jump and write the Shanghai stuff while I was there to get the best out of it. And so I was... I basically put the book to one side, wrote the Shanghai sections, then came back and filled in the gap. So writing it out of order was a new thing for me as well. Um, so each of them has had their different... Um, uh, a different way of flowing um, from, from day one, I suppose. I think... Um, yes, I have had more of an idea of where I'm going, but I still like to just go with the flow as well at times and just see where it takes me. How deliberate are the red herrings, I suppose? If you if you are, I guess, pantsing and you're not 100% sure who done it as you're writing and you come to find out, do you go back in later drafts and kind of plant some seeds to throw people off or how does that all work? Uh, yes, the red herrings are deliberate and, and quite often I will, um, after I've gone through the, first or second draft of the manuscript, Georgia from Freeo Press will give me some pointers as to what makes sense, what doesn't, what needs more seeding, what doesn't, that kind of thing. So I'll go back and fill that in along the way. So what other sort of research go into it, particularly Crocodile Tears? There are a lot of agencies that come into the books. We've got AFP, DFAT, ASIO, a few others. Do you have contacts that you speak to to find out about the inside workings a little bit to make sure that their represent representation is accurate within the story? Um, I try not to... I, I try to make it believable rather than kind of, you know, completely accurate because I, I suspect completely accurate might be really boring. <laughs> um <laughs> So I, I go for believability rather than that. But I, I do check things. For instance, when I went to Timor as part of the research trip for this, um, I was shown around by um, uh, somebody from the Australian military attachment there who also introduced me to the uh, AFP person based in Timor. Uh, and, you know, they gave me, arranged for me to do a tour of the National Police Headquarters in 
Timor, uh, took me out all over the place. So I did get a, a sense of that. Uh, I'll, I'll check what ranks are called and, and whatever in, in the different things. But otherwise, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I do my research. I, For instance, with the police procedural part, I'd, um, you read a lot and you, you watch a lot. And I also had done in my documentary work a, a stint on the force behind the line uh, on Channel 7. So working with, for that with a few months, um, you know, midnight kicking down doors with a camera on my shoulder. <laughs> I didn't do the kicking, I just followed them. But I, I got a sense of what was going on on a day-to-day basis with that. Did you get some inspiration from those days? Uh, I did, yes. I mean, the the character of Cato himself is um, loosely based on somebody I met during the course of that, um, who, you know, two o'clock in the morning in a suburban police station. Uh, it was a Chinese-Australian uh, policeman whose nickname was Cato uh, from his colleagues. And, and I didn't think about it much at the time, but when it came to writing a couple of years later, uh, he came to mind as a kind of a blueprint for what Cato could be. You must have got so much ammunition back in the days of the documentary writing because, I mean, even myself, I remember back to first year being a journo, I was a video journalist and doing my own filming and you just brought it back to me. We were filming a drug raid in Beaconsfield near Fremantle and I remember distinctly one of the coppers saying to me, now we've heard this house has a dog, so just stand back and if the dog runs out, just go and hide behind the car. Like that was going to save me with my camera and you just must get so much ammunition from the work that you've done in the past. That's right, yeah, and and also um, filming a, a crime scene of a, a domestic murder within twenty four hours of it happening. You know, you you see the the footplates on the floor. You see the blood was still there. All of the things that, that obviously go into my uh, what was into the memory bank, if you like. But I had a similar experience in terms of a raid where um, I think it was a drug raid at somewhere out in the country and. I think I got so excited that once they kicked the door down or battered it in, I was kind of second in with the camera and I wasn't meant to be. <laughs> so, so, got el- so somebody came by with a gun in their hands and elbowed me and said, get out the effing way. <laughs> uh, I never forgot that either. Um, I am interested. Crocodile tears, there are a lot of dismembered bodies. Was that a figment of your imagination or something that you'd seen? Um, it was based upon, uh, I'd done a bit of kind of background research on the militias in uh, Timor-Leste and, and the way uh, they had acted during the referendum, um, the, the independence referendum. Uh, and that involved a lot of chopping up, basically, uh, as a kind of sending a message to people. So I drew from that uh, to... Uh, talk about you know the, the nature of the deaths that are being investigated. You mentioned before you travelled to Timor Leste for research. Before you made the trip, had you already written part of the draft, or did you do all of your research pre-writing? Uh, I think I might have started. Uh, it might have been similar to, to the Shanghai situation, where I'd done a lot of the Australian end of things, um, and then I 
was kind of holding off on writing the Timor section until I'd been there and done, and you know I've seen the place and just got a feel for it. So yeah, the, the stuff on the Timor um, visit um, came in big time after I'd been there, such as the visit to the church where the massacre had happened. Um, and of course the cameo by Antonio the Crocodile. I never knew until I went there that when I was visiting the National Police Headquarters in Timor, uh, within the courtyard there's a, a fenced enclosure with a big pond and a, a six meter saltwater crocodile just sitting there um, as a pet or as a totem or as a something to help focus the minds of those being arrested. But yeah, there was a crocodile sitting in their courtyard in an enclosure in the national headquarters of the police. That's just crazy. So how valuable, we have a lot of aspiring writers listening to this program. In your mind, how valuable is it actually going to these places and seeing firsthand for yourself before writing or during the writing even? Uh, For me, it's... uh, Maybe I lack imagination, but I need to have been to the place to write about it. Many people can, you know, they can create worlds. They can they can go back in history. Uh, they don't need to go to to the place. And and often with COVID, we can't travel anyway. Um, and some people just don't have the privilege or the luck to be able to travel. Um, so you know, it's it's great to be able to do that, and I, I, really valuable for me. Uh, I don't think it's completely essential. Uh, it's not it's not impossible to write without doing that. But uh, for, but for me, just getting the extra thing of the flavors, the the, the smells, the look of things. Um, again, there are scenes within the book about a a raid on a kind of a youth gang on the outskirts of Dili, um, and. If I hadn't been to see that area, I couldn't have imagined it when I later wrote it. Um, so for me, it, it's, it really is valuable to be able to do that and I feel really um, privileged and lucky to be able to do that. And this Crocodile Tears was written, as you mentioned, as part of a PhD. You were working with David Wish-Wilson, were you? That's right, yeah. He, um, he was looking over my shoulder while I was writing it, yeah. We had Dave on the program back in, I think, episode five. He was early days. Tell me, you've written so many books before Crocodile Tears. Doing this as part of a PhD, did you come up, was there anything different that you picked up writing tip-wise or anything, particularly working with Dave? Um, I I think because part of the um, PhD thesis was also looking at issues of um, representation, um, of d- different cultures and the whole the gender representations, a whole bunch of things. It kind of it fed into how I, what kind of characters I created within the book, um, and, and what kind of agency they had. So the in, I mean, when I was starting to write the PhD, the the actual thesis part of it was doing my head in. It was full-on academic language and um, it really the, the the academic jargon went was anathema to what I've always believed myself to be which is as a TV documentary maker and as a genre crime writer um, I like to communicate with a mass audience and draw them in rather than put a wall between mm. myself and them and it is really hard so, switching between those two language styles 
That's right. Yeah. And, and so I was, um, I, I went, I think I've said I went through all those stages of bereavement when I was doing the, the thesis of anger and grief and all <laughs> that kind of denial. But, but it did actually did teach me something when I, once I plowed my way through, um, some of the cultural studies, uh, it did like osmosis, uh, feed into what became crocodile tears as well in terms of, some of the issues that um, continue to need to be addressed in uh, all sorts of writing, but particularly crime writing too. So what would be your big tips for someone who's aspiring to write crime? Uh, first and foremost, read a lot. Um, read the kind of books that they, that, yeah, that, that they would like to write and, and not just read them as a passive um, reader, but also second, third, fourth time to look closely at uh, what is going on, what works, what doesn't. And yeah, try and pick apart um, that book that they like, that they would aspire to write uh, to see what's going on. So read a lot and then get on with it and write. So Crocodile Tears is the fifth and we've been told the final instalment of the Kato Kwong series. Is there any sadness saying goodbye to these characters that you've written about for so long? Or have we seen the last of them? Um, second part, that would be a spoiler, but never say never. <laughs> um, I, I, yes, there is a, a degree of sadness because, um, you know, Cato was in there from day one and um, I, I never imagined that would uh, it would attract this kind of cult following that there seems to be there. I think cult means small audience, but uh, <laughs> but um, but it is a it's a loyal following, um, and that's been nice. And it it is quite nerve wracking letting go of that. Uh, I think I first when I moved on to do the Marlborough Man series, I had those thoughts. Then you know, can I really step away from Cato and do this? And it was, I, I think I got my my courage up then. Um, but it does. It, it's like a being unmoored from this kind of safe anchorage that you thought you had. Um, so wondering if it is what I should be doing. But I think it is. It's, it's a, uh, You need to kind of keep on moving and developing as a writer, and that's what I'm doing. I have to ask, what's this about you jumping into the icy waters of Tasmania? Well, I, when I was living in WA, I was doing lots of ocean swimming, open water swimming down at South Beach in Frio. Um, then I came to Tassie. Uh, actually, in, in between, we lived in New Zealand for a few years before I came here and I did a bit there, but yeah, it's a lot colder. <laughs> um, but yeah, Tassie, um, it's it's a different experience altogether. So I bought a wetsuit uh, and I tried to do it at least you know, maybe once a week in the uh, Don Tricasto channel, but yeah, the face ache is something else. Uh, I've worked out a count. It takes about 100 strokes before the the ice cream headache wears off. You make it sound like it's an extreme sport, which for me it definitely would be. <laughs> so Crocodile Tears is out now. What's next? What are you working on at the moment? Um, I've been looking at a – well, I'm, I'm looking also at the, the next uh, Nick Chester novel, the third in that, that New Zealand series. Um as well as I've just completed the first draft of a, a novel loosely based on 
a real-life murder mystery within my own family tree. Uh, that's what comes of working on Who Do You Think You Are for several series. Uh, that kind of keeps on coming into what I write as well. Uh, but yes, the, uh, there was, in the 1950s, um, a distant relative of mine was murdered and it remains unsolved. So um, looking into that as a basis for a novel. It all sounds very exciting. I can't wait to see where it goes. Alan Carter, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. And thank you for listening to the Writers of the Page podcast. Make sure you check out the back catalogue and while you're there, I'd love it if you left a rating or review. It helps other people discover the podcast. If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Maripodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.